0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, let's take out our Bibles today and go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to finish our study of 1 Peter that we've been working on for a few months now. Uh, looking at the last five verses today. It's December, so I feel like I'm ready to say Merry Christmas to you guys. Wasn't quite ready last weekend. Although we did last weekend get our Holdridge family Christmas tree and I'm pretty sure we set a new Holdridge family record. We went up to a Christmas tree farm up in Los Gatos where it was 60 bucks for whatever tree you wanted to get. You gotta cut it down yourself. And so we found an 11-foot tree and uh, somehow figured out a way to strap it on top of our Honda Pilot and bring it back home to Monterey. Got it up and uh, yeah, just fit, you know? So we're loving it. There might be some bare spots, but who cares? It's tall. All right, let's read our passage today. 1 Peter 5, verse 10 to 14. Peter writing, of course, he said, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. And by Silvanus, verse 12, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, this um, letter that Peter wrote a couple thousand years ago, thank you for preserving it for us over the years so that today we could, in our time and space, feed off of it. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that you'd meet us in this moment as we conclude this series through First Peter that you'd shape, Lord, our mentality for the age to come by your word. In Jesus' name, we pray together, amen. Peter here comes to the end of his letter and he commits these Christians that he's been writing to, believers that, to remind you, have been suffering a bit for Jesus, have been slandered or marginalized and are beginning to wonder if persecution is going to be a real thing, a real experience in their lives. Peter has been encouraging these Christians on how to live Life, But here, as he concludes, he commits them to the God of all grace. I think Peter's mood here is kind of like a, a parent who has watched their children enter into adulthood and begin to do adult things. You know, maybe a parent who drops their child off at college for the first time. Or a father who walks his daughter down the aisle to be married or A set of parents watching their children move across country or to another nation. I think in those moments, parents are filled with an understanding that there's only so much that they can do. Their powers, as it were, are limited. You can't go to college with them. You can't be married for them. You can't move to the new community with them. And so as believers, we pray, we pray and ask the Lord to walk with our kids, stand with our kids, strengthen our kids. And I think Peter has that same feeling about these Christians. He loves them, he cares about them, he's spoken to them, but now he realizes, I'm not there with you, and so I have to commit you into the hands of the God of all grace. And that's what Peter calls God there in verse 10, the God of all grace. How did Peter come to learn of God as the God of all grace. Well, I suggest to you part of it was his own experience with Jesus. You know, Peter was a guy who needed a lot of grace from Jesus because Peter was a man who failed a lot in front of Jesus. You might remember the moment where Jesus gathering his disciples together in Caesarea Philippi, Boldly began declaring to them that the day was going to come where he would die in Jerusalem. Now, you and I both know that Jesus' death is crucial to our existence as God's people. If Jesus does not die, he does not rise, there is no gospel, and we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. Peter, though, not knowing this, pulled Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus about the central tenet of the Christian faith. Lord, you don't need to die, you don't need to suffer. Oh, Peter was a man who needed the grace of God. There was another moment where Jesus invited Peter and James and John up to the mountaintop for a season of prayer. And when Peter woke up from his slumber, because that's what he did at prayer meetings, He saw Moses and Elijah present and said things that suggested that he thought that Jesus was only equal to Moses and Elijah rather than the creator of and supreme and above the law and the prophets. Then of course, there's the episode where Jesus warned Peter, as we thought about last week, about his final night before the cross and that Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat. And so in the garden of Gethsemane, he told Peter, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But rather than pray, Peter fell asleep. He failed. And when he woke up and they were arresting Jesus, he thought that he could defend Jesus. So he pulled out his sword. (laughs) And the Bible says that he cut off the right ear of a man named Malchus, the servant of of the high priest. And after healing Malchus, Jesus then looked at Peter and explained to him, I have legions of angels at my disposal. I don't need you and your terrible sword skills to defend me. But then of course, the most tragic of all his failures in the courtyard of the high priest, that night as Jesus, his Lord, was being beaten and accused Peter cursed, cussed as a way to emphasize three times that he did not know Jesus. He had fallen very low. So low, in fact, that even after Jesus rose from the dead, there's indications that Peter thought to himself that he, he, he was done with ministry. That he was no longer going to be a disciple, clearly would not be an apostle, but would live a life of fishing, would go back to that Industry and life back in Galilee. But Jesus would have none of it and restored Peter back into the fold. All of this was the grace of God for this man, Peter. So Peter knew intensely of God as the God of all grace. I mean, if you think about it, what you read of Peter in the gospel accounts is a man who said terrible things and had terrible ideas. But by the time he comes to sit and write first and second Peter, he's become an apostle who has inspired ideas and pens them under the inspiration of the Spirit for millions and billions of Christians to receive from from that time. And so Peter knew of God as a God of grace, a God who restores. And so he wanted to commit these Christians to the God of all grace. And what I want to show you in this passage are three main facets of the grace of God that Peter wanted to entrust them to. The grace, for one, of future glory, the grace, number two, for present living, and the grace, number three, of our church community, how the church blesses and ministers to us today. So let's look first at the grace of future glory in verse 10 and 11. Would you read it again with me? He says, "'And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.'" All right, in verse 10, look at it. You can see your destiny if you're a Christian. Your destiny is this. He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And Peter describes what this glory is going to be like with four words. He says God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I love all of these words. These are things that Peter thought that God would do in the future when Christ returns, when he glorifies his people. The word restore, that first thing that Peter said God would do, it's a word that they would use to describe when a ship would come back from battle or come back from a huge storm. It'd be battered and broken and in need of repair. And so they would restore it. And how many of you have times in your life where you feel a little bit like that? Like, man, I have just gone through a battle or I have just gone through a storm and I'm in need of restoration. Well, when the Lord returns, he will restore his people. Secondly, he said he'll confirm us. That's the second word he used there in verse 10. It's a word that means to make steady or firm. And when a church is marginalized, when God's people are put on the fringe of society, it's hard to feel that you have firm standing. But the day is coming when Christ returns, when he will confirm or make us steady in his kingdom. Peter also said in verse 10 that God would strengthen us. That means that God is going to take these susceptible, vulnerable Christians that Peter was writing to, Christians who had no political power, no real influence on society yet, and bring them ultimately with Christ's return into a position of strength. And finally, Peter said there in verse 10 that God would establish his church. That means to settle you. And when I began this study in First Peter, I asked some of you the question in the first few verses, how many of you feel as a Christian at times like you're homeless? Like this world is my home, but it's not my home. I, 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 I love this community and there's things about it that are beautiful, but I also don't feel like I belong. But the day is coming where every believer will be established. They will be rooted. They will be settled and given that firm foundation in Christ. And all of these actions that Peter describes to, to uses to describe the coming future glory of Christ, they all overlap and crescendo together: restoration, confirmation, strengthening and establishing. What Peter is promising is that one day God is going to take everything that is wrong and he's going to put it right. Now this is cool because what this letter has taught us, this is God's word. What this letter has taught us over and over again is that if you're a believer who's walking with Jesus legitimately and sincerely, then you can and should expect hostility and trial connected to your Christian faith. But a world where that is the guarantee, if you live the disciple life, that is not the world as God originally created it. We are living in a fallen and broken existence and experience. And so God doing this is God setting things right, bringing things to where he wants them to be again. Now you notice the phrase there in verse 10, all of this occurs after something. He says, after we have suffered a little while. That's not one of those phrases that we really enjoy reading in our Bibles, is it? You, know, you might have like a Pink highlighter for some of the verses that you like. And you might be tempted to pull out a black sharpie for this particular line. You know, after you've suffered for a little while. And specifically, Peter's talking about suffering for and because of Jesus. And I'm sure most of us, if we could, we'd choose a suffering free Christian experience. But Peter's clear with this marginalized church you will suffer for a little while because of your connection to Jesus. As I've been saying throughout 1 Peter, this is normal Christianity, not abnormal Christianity, but normal Christianity. And I think we have to have that recognition in our minds that we should expect this throughout our Christian lives, that there will be times that we're mocked or that we have to awkwardly stand out for morals that are different from the people that are around us. You might be slandered or blamed for society's ills. You might be in classrooms or settings where uh, there's an undermining of your faith or biblical values. You might be made to feel like you're hateful or you have poisonous beliefs. You might even be persecuted someday, I don't know. But Peter's point is that the God of all grace will one day rescue us from any and all suffering and bring us home to glory. He will make everything right. And what I want you to see is that For Peter, this did something to him. You see, as a pastor, I've stood in front of groups of Christians for 25 years now and have at various moments talked about eternity. And there's this thing that happens when we talk about future glory. I mean, no matter how much I try to drum up like excitement about it or cast a vision for it, uh, you know, a lot of times there's like this glaze that comes over our eyes, you know, because it kind of just feels like, well, that's something that's distant. I think a lot of people have this feeling like, well, that's, that's something that will happen to me tomorrow, but it does nothing to help me today. So say something that helps me today, because you're just talking about what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, certainly, biblically, There is something helpful about considering eternity to help you endure the trials of today. That's absolutely true. Paul the Apostle said that our present suffering is not worthy of being compared to the eternal weight of glory that is coming. Part of the reason that they were able to endure the things they endured was because they had a clear concept of what was going to happen in their lives in the future. So when you can get that concept firmly within your heart, it will put steel in your spine to become what you need to be today. But Peter had a different outcome that occurred in his life. He's not here just thinking, well, eternity's coming, that helps me be tough for today. No, instead, he thinks about eternity and then look what he does in verse 11. He's thinking about the glory of Christ that's coming. And then he says to him, verse 11, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter lived in a time where the church did not have dominion. It was not clear that God had dominion. The ones with dominion in his day were, was the Roman empire. They had all the resources and if they wanted to, it seemed as if they could snuff out Christianity quite easily with the resources at their disposal. And eventually they tried, but the Roman Empire died and Christianity lived because God has dominion. But Peter, as he interacts with and thinks about eternity. What happens to him is not just a toughness for today, but what happens to him is a longing, a dream a prayer, a wish for God's future dominion that will be revealed to happen right now today in his own life, the lives of the people around him, in his church community, and in his world. And this is so important. When you dwell upon future glory, you should be strengthened for today as a Christian, but you should also want that eternal forever dominion and kingdom of God to be made manifest here today. There's a reason why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're wanting the heavenly reality to be reality in some way, shape, or form today. So this talk of the grace of future glory is actually greatly beneficial to our Christian discipleship and experience. We've got to have it or else we'll be incomplete as human beings. But I also want to talk to you about the grace that God gives for life today. And this comes from verse 12. If you look back in your Bibles, he talked about this man, Silvanus, and we'll talk about him in a moment, but look at the last phrase. He said, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What Peter's doing here is he's describing all of this letter in a specific way. If you were to find Peter on the street and you asked him, hey, what what have you been up to? And he said, well, actually, I just wrote a letter. I think it was pretty good. I think it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I think it's in the Bible now. And I sent it to the Christians over there in Asia Minor. And if you were to ask him the question, well, what, what was it about? You know, if you could give me the elevator pitch, Peter, Peter, what was, what was this book about or this letter about that you wrote? He would say, Well, it was an exhortation and it was a declaration of the true grace of God. Now, we've just spent a number of months studying this letter. Some of you might be dropping in today for the very first time, so you don't know what this letter is all about. You hear Peter say, It's the true grace of God. That's what I wrote about. And you might think that he wrote about some beautiful, idyllic kind of life, but he didn't. He started out the letter in chapter one, verse one, by saying, I'm writing to a group of elect exiles who have been dispersed because of their Christianity throughout the empire. They were already living the exilic life. They'd already been cast out of their societies. He told them in chapter one that they might need to be grieved for a little while by various trials. He told them because of this that they needed to prepare their minds for action and hope in the coming of Christ. He encouraged them to live a life of holiness when no one else would. He told them that just as Jesus was the rejected cornerstone, they also might be rejected. He told them that they were similar to the people of Israel in the Old Testament in that just says Israel was a small minority living among the nations. So the church is a minority group that's called to live among the nations, declaring to them the glories of God. He preached to them of submission to harsh authorities and submitting to them just like Jesus submitted to them. He said that they would be harmed even though they were zealous for good works. He compared them to Noah, a man who lived a long time obeying God before seeing God's promises finally come to pass. He explained to them that Jesus suffered in the flesh and that they should arm themselves with the same way of thinking. He talked about being slandered, insulted, and harmed for the gospel. And he revealed last week that our true adversary is not flesh and blood, but the devil himself who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter, after saying all of those things, he says, this is what I just wrote about. I just exhorted and declared the true grace of God. Now, why would Peter say something like that? It doesn't sound to me like he's described the true grace of God. It sounds to me like he's described a life that requires a helmet. You know, a, right, a life that requires shoulder pads. Why would he say that's the true grace of God? Well, if you think about what Peter experienced in his life, he'd experienced the true grace of God. Not just in being restored, but after being restored, everything that he did, the hostilities that he endured, the imprisonments that he experienced, the beatings that he faced, God's grace was unleashed upon this man during that entire process. He'd experienced God's miraculous power. He'd been used by God fruitfully to preach the gospel to the nations. Over and over again, even though Peter experienced hardship after hardship for Jesus, during all of it, I think Peter's mentality was, I wouldn't trade this for anything because I'm experiencing the goodness, help, hope, love, grace, power of God upon my life as I live this kind of way. This is what Peter means. He's describing a life where God's favor intersects with our suffering for Jesus, or isolation for Jesus, or marginalization for Jesus, or even persecution for Jesus. In Peter's mind, when that suffering is released, so is God's grace. Now this description is clearly not a fluffy kind of Christianity. I think we can all admit that today. This exilic Christianity uh, is, is a faith that endures the fire rather than trying to escape it. And Christianity is the minority on the margins without power in a secular world is one of God's true grace. It's a grace-filled life. You just can't do it without an experience of God. Now, I think this is important because I think a lot of times we're attracted to, in our flesh at least, a light relationship with Christianity, kind of a Christianity light. But Peter's urging us to go all the way in. And to go all the way in, we have to be ready for some hardship. You guys remember the TV show Seinfeld? I can't remember how many years it, it ran, but in the TV show uh, Seinfeld was single the whole time. I think in a sense you could make a case that the whole show is an expression of how to waste your singleness. Kind of, if you just watch that show over and over again, he's like he's got a new girlfriend every single episode. But after years of being a single man, Jerry Seinfeld in real life, he actually got married. And after he got married, he started writing all these jokes about the married life. And here's one that I like. He said, whatever side of marriage you're on, you don't understand what people on the other side of marriage are doing. He said, I can't hang out with single guys anymore. If you don't have a wife, we have nothing to talk about. You have a girlfriend, that's wiffle ball, my friend. You're playing paintball war. I'm in Afghanistan with real loaded weapons. Married guys play with full clips and live rounds. This is not a drill. Single guy is sitting on a merry-go-round blowing on a pinwheel. I'm driving a truck full of nitro down a dirt road. (laughs) I think a lot of us, we want the wiffle ball, paintball, merry-go-round pinwheel version of Christianity but we have to embrace a Christianity that's dangerous, costly, sacrificial. Can't date it, we gotta go all the way in. We have to embrace an exilic walk that leads to rejection, hostility, and just plain being different. Like Daniel, we have to learn how to live in Babylon, and Peter's shown us how to do that. And I pray that we'd be able to do this. You know, Peter tells us something very simple. His exhortation is, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's what he wants us to do with this information. Stand firm in this kind of life. And I pray that we'd be able to do that. You know, I told you at the beginning of this study in 1 Peter that my prayer is that we'd increasingly be able to be a group of believers, just one expression of the gospel here on the Monterey Peninsula, that is increasingly figuring out how to live this exilic Christianity. I've told you at the very beginning that I'm trying to learn how to do this myself. I feel like we're in a different time and that things are accelerating in a specific direction. I've tried throughout this study not to unnecessarily scare you about the future, kind of fear monger about what's coming or something like that. I've tried not to sound as if our culture is so far gone that no one can come to Christ. I really don't believe that. And there are plenty of beautiful things that I think are redeemable and lovely about the culture that we live in. I've tried not to replace Peter's words about suffering for Jesus with just talking about trials in general. This is what a lot of pastors are tempted to do because suffering for Jesus can feel very far away from many of our people. And so we like to just shift it into saying, well, Peter's just talking about suffering in general, but he really isn't. He's talking about suffering for Christ. So I've tried not to go that direction. I've tried to hold up European Christians who I think are out in front of us when learning or in learning how to hold fast to Christ in secular societies. I've tried to say that 1 Peter really isn't about so many of the political things or the things that we've made political in our modern time. I've tried to say, I'm not really talking about things like masks and vaccines when I'm teaching first Peter to you. I've tried to say that this is not an easy process or that I always know what to do. I've merely tried to accurately represent Peter's apostolic theory on how to meet times of opposition for Jesus. And now I'm telling you, that Peter thinks this is the most beautiful version of Christianity, that this is the true grace of God. So we're being invited into something beautiful, I believe, in the years to come. And for this, we're gonna need each other, so let's think about one last avenue of God's grace, the grace of our church community, And for this, I want to look again at verse 12, but also verse 13 and 14. He said, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ." All of these things that Peter closes with, this cluster of thanksgivings and shout outs, to me, when you put them all together, what he's giving a little insight into is the first century church. And the church or the church community, a gospel community is what we really need if we're going to successfully live the exilic version of the Christian life. So let's think about some elements that Peter highlighted from this first century church. First of all, there were a couple of faithful pillar kind of people in the church that Paul wanted to mention by name. He talked about Silvanus first there in verse 12. Silvanus was probably the person who delivered the letter, uh, but he might've been the one who actually wrote it on Peter's behalf. Peter speaking it, Silvanus writing it down. Silvanus shows up in other places in the Bible, sometimes as Silas, And often he is running errands for the apostles, sometimes even delivering letters that the apostles have written. And then he mentions secondly, this guy named Mark. And I'll give you one guess as to what book of the Bible Mark wrote. It's the gospel of Mark. And Mark uh, was a younger man when he came onto the scene uh, as a disciple. He was a nephew of Barnabas, who was a co-laborer with Paul. So he was invited on an early missions trip with Paul the Apostle. Something happened in the middle of that trip, the book of Acts tells us, where Mark quit the missions trip. And that angered Paul so much so that he would not go on a second missions trip as long as Mark was coming with Barnabas. And so Barnabas and Paul actually divided because of Mark's presence. We know that Paul and Mark were restored to each other because Paul concluded at the end of his life that Mark is useful to me for the ministry. He wrote that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But here what we learn is that Mark became a spiritual son to Peter. That's what Peter calls him. Mark, my son, uh, greets you. Uh, He was not Mark's biological father, but his spiritual father, likely becoming the source that Mark used to write the book of Mark Peter's accounts would have been really useful to him in writing down his gospel. And what I'm trying to highlight with these two guys is that Silvanus and Mark, they were both real blessings in the church. They were pillars in the church and that's why their greetings would have been uh, accepted by the churches that received these letters. It would have been refreshing for them to hear, not just from Peter, but also from Silvanus and from Mark. And this is one of the blessings about being in a church family. You get to interact, watch, witness, experience the blessings of those who are exemplary in their walks with Jesus. And they become really helpful to you in the Christian life. They just kind of give you a model to follow and a pillar to lean against and shoulders to stand on. I remember when I was a First, getting started in my walk with the Lord, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, and so a lot of the grown-ups that I knew when I started walking with the Lord at age 18, uh, they they knew my parents. They 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 were part of our church family and community. And one of the first uh, grown-up, mature believers that I ever knew who didn't know my parents, his name was was Jim Jim May, and he was a retired police officer with a full head of gray hair that he slicked back and a gray handlebar mustache. And he had like one of those Clint Eastwood like stares, you know, where he'd just ask you a question and he did not care about the awkward silence that ensued if you did not know the answer and he would not bail you out. And I remember just sitting there with him and this guy loved Jesus so much. He knew so much about the Bible and he drove a Harley too, which I thought was really cool. And he would just ask me these questions about Jesus and ask me about my life. And and it was like, man, this guy is a pillar for me in my early years of my faith to lean against. And I think these believers, Sylvanus and Mark, they are like that. They're pillars in the church. And when you're part of the church community, you get those visions, solid people that are walking with Jesus that can stand out as examples to you. But not only that, in the church community, We're centered around this like bonfire of God's word. That's another blessing that we get, not just solid people, but the word itself. It's written to not just individuals, but to the church. Look at what Peter said in verse 12. He said, I've written to you briefly exhorting and declaring. Now this is our 27th study in the book of 1 Peter. So you might be forgiven for not really realizing that it's a brief letter, but it is. If we sat down and just like, I just opened it up on Sunday and just read it to you, it'd take us about 15 minutes to finish reading the whole book of First Peter. It's not that long. It's taken me about 100,000 words to explain Peter's less than 2,500 words. And I assure you, we could have gone a lot slower because there's a lot there. There's a lot that we had to just kind of skip over, gloss over. That's the nature of, and the gift of the apostolic word, the Bible. It has this uncanny ability to speak. You see, the Bible's not expanding, it's not growing. You know, there's a church in town that's progressive, hyper-progressive and all that, and they've got a little billboard when you drive by, that God is still speaking. The idea being, God's word is being added to. And so we can come to new conclusions that are different than what the Bible directly says but that's not true. God's word is static. It's not growing and expanding, but it continues to communicate in the sense that once you discover its true interpretation, there are billions of applications to those singular truths. I mean, right here, just in this lawn area, all these different people, all all of us here today, we're going to hear the same truth but it will be applied in our lives in lots of different ways from the people that are around us. That's the gift of the apostolic word. Remember the book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Willy Wonka, in that story, he was trying to create a candy called the Everlasting Gobstopper. The idea of it was that you could suck on it and it would never diminish in size, but it would continually rotate through various flavors, a continual discovery. And I think that's what God's word in a sense is like. You can spend a lifetime learning and enjoying the flavors and truths and applications of the word. But, but there's another gift or grace that we get from the church community, not just exemplary Christians or the Bible being present, but there's the blessing of being around Christians who have figured out how to live this exilic Christian life that I've been talking about. Look at what he said in verse 13. He said that the church at Babylon sent them greetings. Now, Peter was not in literal Babylon when he wrote this. Uh, Babylon from the Old Testament era by Peter's day was just a small forgotten place. He was not there. More than likely, he was in Rome and he's using... The name Babylon, which in the Old Testament was like the pinnacle city symbolizing the world system, he uses the title Babylon and applies it to Rome. It's like you've got these Roman Christians that they're living in the zenith pinnacle city of their era, and Peter is referring to that city as Babylon. He's saying these Christians here in Rome, they figured out how to live the exilic Christian life. Believers who have figured this out are a huge blessing to the rest of us, you know, because for some of us, we just don't, we're still trying to learn how to live in a post-post-Christian culture and society. I mean, I know some folks who, I mean, honestly, you know, they're like, they're in the retired stage of life and they don't get out of the house very much. So there's maybe like five or six interactions directly with culture each week in their life and experience. But then there's younger believers who every day of their lives, you know, I announce, say, exilic Christianity is a thing, and they're like, yeah, duh, that's all there is. It's the only experience that we could possibly live. I'm having to figure out how to live out my Christian faith in places that are contrary to the gospel all the time. And believers who figured that out, they're a real blessing to the rest of us because they Show us the way forward in the future. And I think this church in Rome was a great example for all the believers that Peter was writing to. And then another beautiful thing. Look at how he says in verse 14. This is part of our church experience. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, now you guys would feel super weird about it if I started saying like, hey, this is biblical. This is something we need to do right now, right? I mean, this would not be COVID safe. So we would not be into this. Uh, And there is something about us. I think that when we read these kind of things, you know, Paul talked about the holy kiss, greet one another with a holy kiss. We just kind of want to dismiss it as like this cultural thing. That's what they did. They were more comfortable with that kind of thing. We're not there. So, you know, we'll just say hi, fist bumps, handshakes. That's good enough for us. Maybe a little hug, awkward side hug, you know, something like that. But instead of just rushing past this, I want you guys to think about something. You can't hug or kiss or handshake someone else without personal contact and being in their physical presence. You know, I, I love using technology for gospel work, but the reality is nothing can replace being in person. You can't hug someone online. Now, why is that helpful? Why is that important? I think part of the reason for it is because it's a lot harder to be divided. It's a lot harder to hold a grudge or dismiss or be angry at someone when you're in physical contact with them, when you're in close proximity to them. It's a lot easier to read what somebody is saying online or something like that and just dismiss them from afar than if you're sitting in a living room with them and you're in relationship with them, experiencing them. And so this is apostolic wisdom there's something about human touch and interaction that brings us to life and then one last beautiful thing that we get inside this community that god has given to us it's the peace of christ let's close with verse 14 he said peace to all of you who are in christ for the life that peter's described here in first peter we can have the peace of jesus now A lot of Christians make a mistake when thinking about the peace of God, the peace of Christ, and they think of it almost exclusively as a guiding source. What I mean by that is, one one thing we'll say sometimes is, I I prayed about it and I just don't have a peace about it. Now there's certainly something to that, but I just ask you to consider, do you think that when they said to Peter things like, if you keep preaching about Jesus, And his resurrection, we're going to arrest you and beat you. Do you think that as he prayed about that, he had like this peace about, wow, it sounds like a real peaceful, beautiful opportunity that's in front of me to head into prison and beatings and all of that? No, it's not whatever leads me to a peaceful situation that should be my guide. But as I go through the trial and difficulty, I'll let the peace of Christ rule in my heart, to quote from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter three. That's what we need is the peace of Christ. And for us, I think believers should be the most at rest human beings on the face of the earth. We know where we're going. We know who we belong to. We know why people do what they do. We know that we're adopted and chosen, accepted, beloved. We know all of these things. And so we must let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. All right, let's stand together, church. Just kind of ending this book, I want to ask you guys to pray with me. If this is, this First Peter description of the Christian life is something that you want to live, I'd ask you to just pray this along with me in your heart. Father, we come to you today and the challenge of this life that's been held in front of us, Lord, we need your grace for it. But what an exciting life that a lot of us are just learning how to live for many of us for the first time. And so we pray, Lord, and ask that you'd help us. If that life is appealing to you, why don't you just lift your hand to God as an emblem of your need and desperation to say, God, I want to be a recipient of this grace of exile. I'll not run from it. I'll not conform to what's around me. I'll not return hostility for hostility, but I'll embrace this brand of life that you've described. God, would you help us? We need your wisdom to know how to do so. We thank you, Father, and pray that you'd bless us in this life.